When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. The hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the doctor. Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to be back, and I hope that you guys enjoyed the last, I don't know how many hours of programming. I know that I was watching live until about midnight and then started watching live again early this morning, and it has been amazing. I hope you've been enjoying it as well. Um, I have a very exciting uh, hour lined up for us now. Uh, this morning, of course, we're going to be talking to uh, some uh, folks that are working in the field of providing autism treatment in Saudi Arabia. And after that, we will be speaking with my dear friend, Dr. Stephen Edelson from the Autism Research Institute. But uh, before I start, I just want to uh, welcome you all and wish you a lovely morning and tell you that, of course, there are multiple, multiple ways that you can join this podcast-a-thon. Uh, first of all, uh, you could just go online and look at autismnetwork.com, and that is probably the easiest way, but of course, we are on pretty much all the social media venues, and you can find us under Autism Live or Autism Network as well. Um, and of course, my shows uh, will also be under Ask Dr. Doreen. So please go ahead and look for those and let your friends know to join us as well. This is going to be a fun morning. After this hour, I will be doing two segments of uh, the Ask Dr. Doreen show and answering questions for two hours straight. So that should be fun as well. Okay. Um, I hope that our guests are ready and we will, they will be able to join us. I have two, uh, wonderful ladies and there they are from, uh, the Taif Aziz Center in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I would like to welcome, welcome first Victoria Polyanskaya, who is the CEO of the Taif Aziz Center. Uh, she previously served as the Director of Rehabilitation Centers in the United Arab Emirates at the Hayati Health Center in Dubai and the Pediatric Rehabilitation Center in Abu Dhabi. And also joining us is uh, Anya Yelaska, who is the Clinical Director of the Taif Aziz Center. She is a BCBA and Early Intervention Specialist in Autism Spectrum Disorders and Severe Problem Behaviors. We're uh, really happy to have you join us, ladies. I hope you can hear me okay. Oh, I think they might be having an issue hearing me. Uh, so while Traven works on that, um, I will tell you a little bit about <clears throat> the services at, in Saudi Arabia and uh, when, uh, oh, I think we've lost them and hopefully their feed will come back in a moment. Okay, so we're going to just change their audio and then they will be able to join us. Um, I wanted to let our viewers know that about a few years ago, I uh, met a gentleman who was very dedicated to helping individuals with autism across the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and they, he, he and his family have done a tremendous amount for autism. They have 
uh, developed this beautiful center, which honestly, if, if we could get centers like that in the United States, it would be amazing, uh, is a huge center and it offers all different types of services under one roof, which is amazing. Uh, ABA, of course, as well as speech therapy, occupational therapy, and psychological services. So um, I'm really happy that shortly we'll be able to talk to the CEO and also the clinical director of, of the TAFE Aziz Center in Riyadh. Uh, but also uh, there have been recently the, the family that opened this center also helped open a, uh, bring a school uh, that allows special needs children. It's a beautiful, very large school that is, of course, regular education, but at the same time, it provides uh, access to four children on the spectrum. Uh, each of them have their own aides in the classroom, and there are individualized education plans and all sorts of modifications that take place for these children so that they can attend. Um, the school is a fantastic place as well and has all kinds of resources. I see that they are back. I'm not sure if uh, you can hear me yet, Victoria or Anya. Oh, you can. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, welcome again. Uh, I, I gave your introduction a little bit earlier. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Traven, perhaps you could increase their volume a little bit so that I could hear them better. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I was just telling our viewers about how uh, things are gradually changing in Saudi Arabia, and I would love to ask uh, each of you, uh, first of all, Victoria, if you don't mind, uh, tell our viewers a little bit about the TAFE Aziz Center in Riyadh. Yes, Dr. Rin, thank you so much for, for inviting us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm the CEO of Tefazi Center, which is a multidisciplinary clinic uh, based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And we are focusing on treating uh, of children with autism and developmental delays, right? So we provide services ranging from ABA to occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, psychology services for uh, children and their parents. And we are family-inclusive clinic as well. Um, Anya, anything would you like to add? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, good morning, one more time to everyone. Uh, yes, we, um, Tafaziz is one really beautiful and modern facility that is designed to accommodate um, specific needs uh, of children with autism, but other, uh, also other neurodevelopmental disabilities. And uh, I can say that we are proud because we are currently only providers in Riyadh offering multidisciplinary approach and uh, mm -hmm. let's say like all-in-one services. Uh, because we are starting from screening, early detection of red flags over the diagnose, intervention, and family training. So uh, actually when parents are in need, then when they come to us, they can receive all services in one place. That's really amazing, and congratulations. It's wonderful that you're providing these services for families in Saudi Arabia uh, tell me, do you, you've both, uh, worked in other countries in the Middle East as well. Uh, how do you think autism is received in Saudi Arabia? Do you think that, uh, it is now changing how people look at autism and also, you know, how, how is there access to diagnosis and treatment? Look, I, I, you know, it's a great question, right? So I think the answer is, is it's um, it's changing nowadays, right? So historically, I think there was lack of awareness, right, which was actually uh, uh, led to uh, lack of diagnostic, right? And therefore, it's very difficult to find any data, reliable data on, on prevalence of autism uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but also, there was somewhat stigma against individuals with autism and um Autism used to be perceived as a sort of source of shame or disappointment, and um, children were not really brought for, uh, uh, for for diagnostic and subsequent treatment. Um, so I think nowadays, uh, you know, associations, various government entities are actually putting a lot of emphasis on on earlier screening, 
right, and, and launching sort of a national screening programs, right, of, of identifying those red flags. And actually, the, the, the earlier, obviously, you identify those individuals uh, with red flags, uh, uh, the earlier you construct the treatment and better outcomes will be. So this is what I have observed in the sort of past almost one year that I've been in Riyadh, and I, and I obviously think these are, these are great changes. That's terrific. I, I believe you are going to be doing something quite unique when it comes to this screening. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your mobile screening program that you're planning to do? Yeah, so look, it's a, it's a, a really uh, a great program that we're looking to launch with the Saudi Families Association um, uh, so around May and it's going to last for about four or five months. So the idea is basically to have that mobile sort of uh, uh, kind of a, a bus ride that will go around Saudi Arabia in the most remote areas um, with the um, sort of screening tools that will allow parents just by answering sort of a set of questions and obviously interacting with our therapists to identify if there are any red flags uh, that they should be sort of uh, cautious about and, and reach out to specialists in regards to this. Um, so as you know, right, so obviously in, in a bigger cities, perhaps awareness is higher, but when it comes to more rural areas or, you know, more remote areas, smaller cities, so this is, they're still lacking um, providers like, like, like TAFE Aziz, right, who do diagnostic and, and intervention services. Um, so I think that will be really, uh, you know, a game changer. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's really going to cover the whole Saudi Arabia. So we're really excited about it. That's amazing. And uh, I'm sure you'll be able to help a lot of families. Uh, now, let me ask you, do you uh, provide services in, in multiple languages, in Arabic as well as English, or how does that work? Because I know you, there are also a growing number of expats in, in Saudi Arabia as well these days. So, yes, yeah, definitely. We are providing services both on English and on Arabic, uh, depend on uh, parents' uh, need. And most of the families, you would be surprised because uh, they have uh, this culture of nannies. They are helping them and helpers at home, and they are usually brought from uh, different countries, and they are not speaking uh, all of them Arabic. So they mostly are interacting with children in English. So basically, uh, parents are uh, uh, demanding that we work uh, with their children on English. Uh, but yes, also still Arabic and English, we combining de depend on the family needs. Very, very good. And what is the uh, average age, you would say, that uh, children are being diagnosed there? So um, from my experience, I'm now here like three years. Uh, I can say that I'm uh, noticing that uh, the age is like uh, earlier now, mm, okay. like uh, two, yeah, two years, three years old. Um, uh, I recently had a one-year-old child in um, uh, asking for services. Wow. So uh, I believe that they are starting to have this um, early detection. And uh, that's why we are also planning to increase um, uh, services for further intervention um, in typhasis. Well, that's fantastic. That's going to be so useful. Now, of course, once you get involved with a lot of early intervention, it becomes more intensive and therefore, of course, more expensive. Uh, I know that here in the U.S., it uh, was very difficult to do intensive hours with families before we had any kind of public funding. Uh, do you have uh, any kind of health insurance or public funding in Saudi Arabia for autism treatment? So uh, for, for Saudi nationals, uh, uh, there is uh, some insurance coverage available. Unfortunately, I, I, you know, I believe it's not sufficient to really um, uh, um, have enough hours, right? Because we, we, we all know that ABA requires uh, intense hours. Ten hours per week is actually the, the minimum number of hours. Um, so, however, having said that, I think there is a uh, uh, there is initiative at government level to increase that coverage going forward. Uh, you know, numbers also stated that 
Um, you know, it, it should have happened sort of uh, either end of this year or next year. Mm -hmm. um, if that happens, right, that will always obviously give um, access uh, to, 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 to better, more sort of uh, efficient treatment uh, and to more people. Um, at this point of time, uh, a lot of it is also sort of um, uh, out of pocket uh, uh, pay, right, of the parents, uh, which is obviously quite heavy, right? Uh, and, and this is, I think, something that is very, very important to address going forward. Definitely, it's, it's difficult when there isn't any funding. How about uh, education? What, what do you think, Anya? I know that you've you're overseeing, uh, you know, all sorts of therapies there, speech and OT and ABA and, and psych services. Um, first of all, what do you plan for, or is there a parent training, parent education component to what you provide? And, and could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, sure. So currently we are um, um, settled in this way that we are actually supporting families and prompting them to attend the sessions during uh, their uh, children are attending regular therapy services. And most of them are really very cooperative and very willing to, to participate in these sessions. Uh, we have senior staff that uh, supervising or let's say head of departments, they are overseeing the junior staff and they are responsible for uh, parent training. But also we are uh, planning and we are starting a set of um, uh, specific workshops with uh, uh, specific topics that we detected through these uh, uh, years that there are like uh, problem behaviors, how to support communication with nonverbal children, uh, how to um, recognize um, early signs. So we will start these workshops uh, after Ramadan and uh, we, will, we are planning to do a lot of these workshops to increase awareness and to more educate um, uh, a broad public. Yeah? yeah, do you think that parents, um, the more education they get, the more... <clears throat> Do you think it influences the program in a positive way once they're they're more aware of what what to do with their children and how to communicate? Yes, definitely, <clears throat> and, and especially when they are involved in the child treatment, uh, they are willing to participate at home and they are working with children. We have really a positive feedback from them. They are sending us back videos how they are working oh, with nice. their kids. So this is uh, really something that um, that uh, gives a better um, um, like um, outcome for the child. That's wonderful. And and what do you think about the the quality of treatment? I was uh, surprised in a really positive way when I <clears throat> came to Saudi uh, the first time that there are quite a few credentialed uh, uh, RBTs there or other, you know, behavior therapists with other international credentials. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think the, the quality of the service providers, those folks who are the clinicians, what do you think about the quality? Look, from my perspective, so I've, I've worked um, um, over 11 years in the UAE. And, uh, you know, I, I came to Saudi last year, uh, so I started working in Riyadh and managing TFSEs. So I was obviously also wondering uh, what kind of local talent we can find in, in pediatric rehabilitation space. And I was really pleasantly surprised, right? There is really great talent out there, um, registered behavior technicians, mm -hmm. you can find BCBAs, right, all with international accreditation, striving to get other uh, 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 sort of accreditations or certificates. So um, I think from that perspective, it's, it's, it's really good, right? We have great talent to help people, uh, individuals with autism and really make a difference. Are, are there actually uh, training programs in ABA at the universities there, at, like there are here? Yes, uh, yes, there are. There are some... Uh, Places here, like uh, uh, some universities and the Autism Center of Excellence, they are providing uh, trainings, like a, uh, accredited trainings for the people that are in special education. So the, they get really good trainings. I also was, as Victoria said before, uh, like um, surprised uh, how many young talents and uh, good professionals uh, they have here in Saudi. Well, that's really good. I'm very happy to hear that because, you know, obviously 
here in the U.S., uh, just last week or maybe two weeks ago, we had uh, new prevalence numbers came out, right? And uh, it shows you how recent it is. When we started planning this podcast marathon, uh, we had chosen 44 hours of live streaming because the prevalence was 1 in 44. And, of course, now it has increased to 1 in 36 um, and we were all pretty shocked. Uh, what are your thoughts about this increase? And do you think, uh, are you seeing similar increases in the Middle East? Yeah, look, you know, I've, I've done, you know, my research also on the uh, autism prevalence in the GCC, right? And it's, and, and it's really difficult to find reliable data, not just for Saudi Arabia, but across GCC. Um, simply, as, as I said, it's because there was lack of awareness, right? And there was really lack of diagnostic, right? So people mm-hmm. didn't know that this is actually autism. Um, they were not really bringing children to, 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 to specialists, right? Um, so I believe that, that, you know, that there is really, the numbers are growing, right? There is a lot of still ambiguity around this disorder, right? Uh, and, and, you know, about the root causes of it. Uh, but I think as a general trend, it's, it, it's, it's definitely, uh, the, the numbers are also increasing here. It's just we're lacking really reliable data. Yeah, it's very difficult. I know that I think the U.S. data is also even three years old. It's from 2020. Yeah. So uh, it'll be a while, I think, before we get better data. And, and uh, let me ask you, one of the things that I see across the world is that um, even in countries where there's a lot of developing resources, there's always a, a much more focus on younger children. Um, are there programs or services in Saudi that are mainly for teenagers or adults on the spectrum? Uh, yeah, <laughs> Victoria. Yeah, look, so... Uh, also, great question, right? So, uh, I'll just refer to my experience in the UE for a second. Um, when I started the first clinical hiatal center, I remember uh, in my discussion with KHDA that, that there was the question, right? They were asking, what about adults with autism, right? What are we going to do for them? And um, I think this is a general trend uh, in the GCC and in Saudi Arabia. I'm not really aware of... of um, of facilities focusing in particular on, on adults with, with autism, right? Or teenagers with autism. And those facilities, for example, focusing on vocational training, right? So often, um, uh, you know, clinics like ours provide some sort of a, some type of vocational programs, right? Uh, in our case, we are, we are focusing more on the sort of, um, uh, younger children. Uh, but I think this, this part has to be addressed, right? Because eventually, uh, 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 after sort of uh, attending sessions in a clinic like ours and getting sort of ABA and, and speech and occupational therapy, uh, the child will need to attend vocational program, right? And there will be other services required to help him integrate into the workforce, right? Get independent sort of life skills uh, and, and so on and so forth and support him around, uh, along that journey. Um, I don't know, Anya. Have you? What's your view on that? Uh, yeah, definitely there is. Um, I did my research on this. Uh, there are no any facilities that are providing this kind of services, unfortunately. And one other thing that we are facing, like it's um, a problem with inclusion of the children with special needs uh, in the regular system, like in mainstream settings. Uh, definitely schools here are not ready yet. So we are facing and we are struggling with a um, um, lot of difficulties when we are um, thinking that some child is ready for, for the school. Um, um, so in this way, we also offering support for the teachers and uh, uh, through training of the teachers and educating them. But still, it's a big struggle with the, with the schools here. Yeah, it's very difficult. So what actually happens with... Uh, either the children who can't go to school or with the adults or teens? Where, what are they doing? Are they just kind of staying at home with their parents? Uh, most of them, uh, most of them, they are staying at home with the parents and they, uh, families uh, able, they are paying for 
private tutors or private teachers or therapists to come to their homes. Uh, Some of the private schools uh, here are more open to receive the children with special needs um, uh, and um, uh, to, uh, you know, to give the staff the training and to collaborate with, uh, with us. But for the adults specifically and teenagers, and then uh, especially if they are uh, with uh, problem behaviors, they are mostly at home, unfortunately. That's uh, very sad and must be very, very difficult for the families. Um, I, you know, it's wonderful that you are there, Anya, and that you have the expertise with severe problem behaviors because uh, is it, is, you know, I would imagine that also with these teenagers or adults, the severe problem behavior is increasing because they're having a hard time communicating and perhaps are more frustrated. Do you see that there? Yes, of course. Uh, we are currently also working on, on problem behavior program to implement in our center because we detect that, that there is a need. Uh, so, uh, again, key is the early intervention as we earlier start with the children and we prevent uh, development of these uh, problems, it will be much easier for families. But still, we have clients that are in particular age, they uh, didn't receive proper services and or services on time, and that we want to uh, accommodate them and help them, uh, especially yeah. for families. Yeah, so you're doing a lot of really good work. Congratulations. It's, it's wonderful to talk to you both. Uh, is, given that April is Autism Awareness uh, Month, uh, is there anything that, any message that you'd like to share with the rest of the world for this month or for the coming year? What are your, your hopes and dreams? From my side, obviously, I'm really happy that uh, the awareness of autism is increasing in Saudi Arabia, right? So, and we're here to help. So, um, uh, you know, parents should not lose hope. Uh, they should come to us. Um, uh, the earlier they start the treatment, the better that the outcomes are. Um, we will be launching in May. So we're just now in the middle of Ramadan. So unfortunately, not uh, things are a bit slow in, in Saudi Arabia. But uh, as of May, we'll be launching a series of workshops for parents and parents' family training, parents' education. So we really, really encourage um, um, uh, parents of our uh, children that are already enrolled in the programs, um, uh, new parents to, to join those programs, educate themselves, and, and obviously collectively we can, we can help uh, those children uh, to develop uh, in the future. That's wonderful. Yeah, from my side, I would like to say something that I usually say to my students uh, when I'm working with them. There was one uh, nice quote that I read some one time, and uh, it says, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. So this is our mission. That's lovely. Thank you so much, ladies. I really appreciate it, and I wish you all the best. And again, your center is the Taif Aziz, T-A-Y-F-A-Z-I-Z Center in Riyadh. And thank you so much for joining me. I know that it's Ramadan, uh, so uh, schedules are a little bit different. And I wish you a very good month and uh, wish you all the success in the world. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Dr. Thank Green. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. So it's always lovely to see that there are folks all over the world. This is not something that was, you know, when I started in the field many, many years ago, uh, you didn't see a lot of uh, services in other parts of the world, especially in, in the Middle East. Uh, I think I remember doing diagnoses for kids who would come from Saudi Arabia, and they were often much older because uh, not only did it take a long time for the families to recognize there was something a little different, but it was also very, very difficult to get a diagnosis there. So I'm really happy to see that uh, the TAFE Aziz Center is now open and available and helping families. And I can tell you, I visited the center and I am affiliated with helping them develop programs and curricula for the children they treat. And it is very, very impressive. So I'm very happy to 
uh, be able to showcase their talents. Uh, wonderful, wonderful center. Great. So I'm wondering if uh, Dr. Steve Edelson is uh, available, and I am so excited now to be able to spend the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so speaking with Dr. Steve Edelson, who is the director of the Autism Research Institute. Uh, Steve has been active in the field for over 30 years, and he became director of uh, ARI in 2006 after the passing of autism pioneer and advocate Dr. Bernie Rimland. Uh, Steve and I have known each other for quite a while. I am so excited to spend some time and catch up with my dear friend Steve. Uh, Trayvon, is he? Oh, there you are, Steve. Hey, it's great to see you. Yeah, you too. Actually, I don't see you. I only see myself. I guess that's how it is. Well, um, I, yeah. I, yeah, that's great because I see you as well, and it's been a really long time. And, um, of course, for our viewers, they can see you and I next to each other, and this is this will give us a little chance to catch up. So, Steve, yeah. um, I, I was trying to think back when we first met, and I remember where it was. It was at Cedars-Sinai Hospital, um, and you were doing, I believe at that time, you were doing research on auditory integration therapies, but I can't remember even close to the year. It must have been 1990 or maybe 91. It was very early on. Uh, well, two things. One, actually, this is my 45th year. 45 years. Autism. There you go. And I think the website, um, we, we got to update that a bit. Yes. Um, but I, I think we must have met, um, yeah, early 90s. I, I did um, several studies with Bernie Remlin and Margaret Bauman and others on auditory integration training. And, um, yeah, I remember uh, meeting you for the first time as well, and we just kept in touch and with a lot in common, and here we are now. It's amazing, yeah. And, uh, of course, for many, many years you've been running the Autism Research Institute. I am a, a big follower, and I love not only the... Uh, the entire center, but I love your newsletter that comes out every, I think it's monthly now, yeah, and it's just fantastic. I, I often refer people to your website and um, tell them to get your newsletter. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you're working on now. Um, well, as far as newsletters, um, yeah, usually at the end of the year, I, I write down everything that, you know, that happened during the year, good and bad, and I calculated how many newsletters, hard copy, and e-copies, and um, we send out um, about 34 total a year. So, oh, yeah, which means almost three a month. So That's amazing. Uh, we do distribute a lot of information. Uh, we've been editing books lately. Um, they're multidisciplinary. Uh, we had one on self-injurious behavior, another on anxiety, another on sleep disturbances, and each chapter is written by a different, um, an expert in a different field. For example, we'll have a chapter on medical intervention, another on nutrition, another on sensory, uh, on sen um, behavioral therapy, on metabolism, and, 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 and so on. So, um, so that, that's been keeping us busy because with all those um, different types of issues, there are different reasons for them. And one of the problems out there in the field is that, say, if you have, um, say, a sleep problem, then if you go to a sensory person, they'll have one set of recommendations. If you go to a behaviorist, they'll have so a different true. set. If you go to a medical um, uh, doctor, he or she will give you another set of treatments and so on. But it often depends on, on uh, the type of behavior as well as um, what's causing it and maintaining it. So hopefully these books will shed some light on the different reasons for these behaviors and, and different ways to help them. So how, if, of, if our viewers yeah. want to get these books, how should they, uh, how, what do they do to get the book? I'm interested myself because it sounds like you have a really good collection. 
Correct. Well, they can just go on Amazon, search Edelson Autism, and oh, I'm good. sure they'll see them, and that'd be fine. But related to one of the books on self-injurious behavior, which is probably one of the most challenging uh, behaviors and most difficult to uh, treat, um, we're about to premiere, we couldn't have, probably as early as next week, we've been working on it for almost a year, a new app. It's free on, on the internet, and obviously you could run it on your cell phone, in which you uh, complete or answer about 23, 24 different questions regarding that behavior, on its location, what might um, um, be associated with it, such as seizures and so on. And then after you um, fill out the questionnaire, submit it, it then um, runs through an algorithm, and then it tells you this behavior might be due to, say, seizures. Um, and these are resources. In fact, it gives links um, to um, research studies um, that might reveal some of the insights as the underlying reason as well as intervention. And so that's about to premiere probably within a few days or Wow. Early next week. And That's wonderful. And we probably do that on other types of challenging behaviors, such That's as anxiety, amazing. sleep, you know, feeding, and so on. So those will probably come out later this year. So that's exciting. And actually, I'm just, as far as what's going on, I just returned back um, from Chicago where we had our annual think tank. We started this in 95, so it's roughly 28 years. Yeah. And um, basically... With this three-day think tank, um, we invite both clinicians as well as uh, medical researchers. So the medical researchers go on the podium and they give um, an update in terms of some of the um, cutting-edge research going on in the field. And obviously, the clinicians are very interested in it. And then the clinicians go on the podium and they say, guess what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And obviously, the researchers are, are quite interested in that as well. So, and I believe, Doreen, you've been to a few of them as well. I have been to, yeah, several of the think tanks, and they're always very, very educational, and I always used to enjoy them. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, what is this app that's coming out? What is the name of it? Um, I think it's just a general understanding and treating self-injurious behavior. Okay. And then if people subscribe to our free a monthly e-newsletter, um, we'll announce it. We'll be sending quite a few e-blasts this month because we have a lot of new initiatives this month. Great. And so, so we'll reveal it, you know, when it's ready. And um, hopefully it will help quite a few individuals out there. It's, anyone could fill it out, parents, professionals, and so on. And the good thing is, again, it gives some resources uh, to look into uh, uh, different reasons. So, yeah, um, yeah we're pretty uh, excited. We're that's working awesome. About a yeah. year. I'm a programmer, so I actually wrote the program myself. That's amazing. Was, That's um, amazing. You know. I had forgotten that. That's right. I remember that you used to do that quite a bit. Um, yeah. You know, I, you mentioned that uh, one of the possible, and I, I always, I've, I've also been in the field since 78, so it's also 45 yeah. years for me, and I was, I'm still learning, you know, and you just said, uh, with regards to self-injurious behavior and the possibility that sometimes it's caused by seizures. And I had actually maybe not known that or forgotten that. But do you, do you find that to be something that is common? Uh, that, that children who are having maybe subclinical seizures, uh, could exhibit that and, and by having self-injurious behavior because they, kind of something's happening and they can't control it or they don't know how to express it? Um, well, there is evidence that there is an association between seizures and, and self-interest behavior. However, I don't know how common it is. Uh, I haven't seen any studies that looked at the prevalence of that. And um, obviously we need that as well as other reasons. For example, some um, clinicians may not make the connection, but sometimes an individual may be hitting their face because the individual has lodged something up their nose. Mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. But often people don't think about that. But if on the questionnaire it says, do they hit their face, that will give, be one of the many possibilities of the, the underlying reason for the behavior. That's really good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I have currently a patient who has some self-injurious behavior, and it's 
always very difficult, as you know, trying to come, you know, understand exactly what's going on because so many of the folks that we work with can't really express what's happening with them. So that's a really great area. But you mentioned some others that are, you know, when I do my shows, I have a lot of questions about anxiety. And there is just so much, not just, um, I, I feel like it's increased in the children and adults that we treat, but also in parents. You know, what do you see with anxiety and, and its overlap with autism? Um, well, the estimate is it could be as up to 80% of those yeah. on the spectrum who yep. suffer from anxiety. There's different types of anxiety, chronic anxiety, social anxiety, um, fear of um, interacting uh, with even animals and other, other situations. So there's different types. And um, I'll tell you, for a long time, it was somewhat ignored because you cannot observe anxiety mm -hmm. like you can other behaviors like self-injury and so on. And I'm thrilled that there's much more attention on anxiety. Actually, in the book that, um, that we um, edited uh, on anxiety, we have a a chapter on immunology that I co-authored with Judy Vandewater that mm -hmm. it's quite possible that toxins in the environment um, will um, trigger the immune system, which then is associated with uh, um, autonomic nervous system and lead to anxiety, right, similar to that. But you know, it's theoretical, no solid research, but good logic behind it. Um, but yeah, um, we could, you could have a whole 44 hours just on anxiety. Absolutely. I agree. I just, actually, I think yesterday I did an hour on anxiety and how, <clears throat> you know, just having the, uh, the, I guess the disabling parts of autism, like not being able to understand, uh, the sensory sensitivities that our individuals have, all of those types of things, the, GI pain that they might be experiencing, the lack of sleep, of course, all of these things can increase your anxiety. And I have to say, Steve, like, you know, a lot of, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, believer. I'm a behaviorist but, and a psychologist, but a very, very big supporter of the nutritional and biomedical <clears throat> interventions. And I am a really, um, I guess, strong supporter of treating the whole child, making sure that, that everything with the child is stable and as, as healthy as is possible so that once we do these interventions like behavioral or psychological interventions, uh, we're actually having the most effect. And I want to thank you and, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Bernie Rimland, my dear old friend in passing, that uh, because I learned a lot of this stuff just from you guys and from having attended those think tanks and also your conferences. And um, I want to applaud you because it is, you know, more than 30 years that you've been uh, disseminating this information to the world in so many different ways. Um, I remember the first time that I saw a video of Dr. Rimland talking about how on, on some interview in the 60s, I think it was like 63 or 64, talking 60, about... 68. 68, <laughs> there you go, where he was talking about how autism has nothing to do with parenting and that it, there must be some uh, biochemical cause or relationship. So... Uh, you've done great work in this area, and I just want to thank you for that because you've taught me a lot, and I'm sure a lot of other people as well. Yeah, thank you, Dorian. Well, talking about Bernie Remlin, just briefly, and I want to mention something else. But, yeah, he basically had a son, Mark, mm -hmm. who actually I have lunch with every Sunday at his group home. Awesome. And, um, um, and Dr. Remlin just finished um, his uh, obtaining a Ph.D. in experimental psychology, uh, started working for the Navy as a civilian. Um, Mark was um, different, and they went to a lot of pediatricians, and they, they would either say he'll grow out of it, or they said that um, the parents just weren't perceiving their ch ch child's development very well. And then they realized from an old textbook that Mark had autism. And uh, when 
um, Dr. Roman started searching the literature, he realized that literally everyone, everyone, not, um, was bl blaming him and his wife using one term was um, refrigerator mothers. And he set out to write a paper to disprove it just logically and kept growing. And after five years, it turned into a book, came out in 64, which turned the whole field topsy-turvy. It just yeah. changed everything completely. And um, um, and he suggested both in that and the first documentary, which you described, Doreen, um, that autism was due to a neurological genetics and or the environment, and still holds true today. But a uh, time Dr. Remlin, um, he used to collect a lot of things. And so over the past couple of years, I've been doing a, a deep clean, <laughs> and I realized there's quite a few just amazing things. So <laughs> next to... Um, the, the Autism Research Institute, we also have a, another office. It's actually four rooms, which we turned into an art gallery um, to highlight his son's work as well as other people with disabilities. And um, because of COVID, we closed it down. And when it's about time to open it up again, I realized that it's hard to, besides running the Institute, run an art gallery and have a, a new show almost every month. So I decided to turn it into a museum. So it's wow. the National Autism History Museum. It opened the other day on Autism Awareness Day, and it contains quite a few artifacts. Um, for example, a Coca-Cola bottle from 1985 about autism. It's still sealed. Um, Temple Grand's most popular book, Thinking in Pictures, we actually have on display a galley proof where it's uh, – the book is sent to the author and they make the final edits and we have edits and Temple um, gave a copy to Bernie Remlin and he adds, had some edits for it, which is in that um, galley proof and quite a few other things. In fact, I've been contacting quite a few researchers to um, donate a lot of important artifacts. And actually Temple said she's going to donate an empty prescription bottle for her anxiety <laughs> Um, Margaret Bauman, a, a slide from one of her, her well, from her first um, paper on brain impairment. And actually, Beth Mallow, who's an expert on sleep, she sent us um, an actual um, monitor that they used in the study, as well as a shirt that all the children wore. So, um, so basically, if you're in San Diego, um, yeah, visit us and you'll see quite a few things you've never seen before. That's in fact, amazing. the very first issue of the um, Journal of Autism and Developmental Disabilities, which used to be called um, Journal of Autism and Childhood Schizophrenia. Yep. You, can't, you can't find it anywhere. Not, I've been checking eBay for the last few years, see if I can get another copy, but yeah, we have the original. That's amazing. That is so brilliant. I love that. We actually had Temple on this show last night, and uh, yeah, that's, I, you know, I would love that. That's an interesting <laughs> memento to have in the museum, her prescription bottle. That's great. I have to go through my stuff. I have some great things that I might bring down for you. You know, yeah. as you know, I have a huge, uh, beautiful portrait of Dr. Bernie Rimland, and I would be happy to, if you wanted to hang that in the museum, that would, that's awesome. Yeah. Sure. And, and of course, he also was kind enough to sign an original copy of his book, which I have as well framed. Um, so that's, that's really a great thing you've done, Steve. That's very, very nice. And I'm, it's so wonderful that it's there for people to see because, you know, I was just talking over the last, uh, several shows about for those of us who've been in the field for so long, it's, Really amazing to see all the changes, you know, on the one side, of course, I guess, you know, from Bernie and where he started. And then when you and I started, we were just kind of at the tail end of the Bettelheim era. Right. Yeah. And it was uh, it was also kind of getting people to understand uh, that children or individuals with autism can learn can change, there are, <clears throat> and that we can support them in so many ways. And now, you know, fast forward so many years later, not only do we have health insurance coverage, which is incredible, uh, but, we, you know, you can go to any restaurant pretty much and ask for gluten-free foods, which mm -hmm. would have not been something we could imagine years ago. Um, what do you think, Steve, about this 
increase in prevalence again that just was announced recently. And kind of what are your thoughts about how the, the field has changed and where we still need to go? Right. Well, um, when people look at the prevalence rates um, published by the CDC, uh, they sometimes assume that's a birth rate. So, so the odds of having a child on the spectrum today is one in 36. But you have to realize um, it usually takes them a couple of years to pull that together yeah. the data. Yeah. And second, um, I haven't read the current paper, but all the previous statistics are based on eight-year-olds. Right. And this so year, this time, this time they went down to four-year-olds. So, so this yeah. is a birth one in 36 reflects the birth rate of autism in 2012 or 2013. Um, so the question is, what is the birth rate now, which I think is actually even more important in yeah. order to try to figure out why it's increasing. So um, since autism still hasn't leveled off, um, probably is much higher now um, as far as birth rate. And so that's something to keep in mind. Um, I think um, a long time ago when the stats were first started to be uh, published by the CDC, I believe it was in the mid 90s or early 2000s. Um, awareness was a, 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 a one of the interpretations, but I, I think there's enough evidence to say, well, awareness has a little effect, but most of it, it, it is an increase. And um, although roughly 20% appears to be purely genetic or syndromic, um, the other 80%, um, I'm sure some of that will be genetic eventually. But it seems like a predisposition, uh, genetic susceptibility, um, with along with um, toxins in the environment. There's pretty good research showing that the closer one lives to a highway, the more likely the, the, the risk for autism. The closer one lives to a farm with organophosphate pesticides, the mm -hmm. risk increases. And just a few days ago, there was a study showing if there's um, high levels of lithium, which comes from well, batteries in the water, there's a significant increased risk of autism. So I think we really have to um, be aware that it's more than just um, genetics and that there really is an increase and that um, pollution, toxins in the environment, exhaust from cars and pesticides and so on um, really need to be examined. And, um, and what I really think needs to be done in order to figure this out, which is not done at all, and it's not that hard, um, you, look, there's genetic studies and there's environmental studies, but they're not merged together. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at the genetics of autism, um, you should also study what they're exposed to. And I think once um, researchers start to combine the two, which to me is a no-brainer, um, we're going to have answers quite fast. You know, that it's amazing. You and I haven't spoken and we used to get together pretty regularly. You were always kind enough to come and visit me in LA. We haven't spoken in, in many years now. We've both been busy with our own lives, but now that, you know, just connecting, I, it, it's kind of pleasant for me to see that we're still exactly on the same page. And, you know, you're one of the few people that I talk to and you feel it just it just reaffirms what I think about autism when I hear you saying it because I really do. It's you know it's funny when this one in thirty six number came out. Most of the people that I asked the question, "What are your thoughts about this?" A lot of people talk about, "Oh yeah, we have to make sure there's access to care," which of course is very important. But my first instinct was exactly what you said, which is why. What's causing it? Can we focus more on the environmental toxins and how things have increased so dramatically? Of course, in our world is all about autism, but other chronic illnesses as well. And it is really, really concerning to see this level uh, of influence that these toxins have on our lives and on, and on the development of our children. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So before I let you go, I have I have to ask you, how did you meet Bernie and when did you meet Bernie? And, and you know, what brought you into this field and, and has kept you so long? 
Um, well, just briefly, um, uh, you know, this could be a short or a long um, description. Um, uh, well, you, you and I were both um, students of Ivar Lovas. Um, I took his popular course as an undergraduate. Um, and I remember seeing Bernie Remlin's um, documentary, which you mentioned earlier. And um, I, I had interest, but I didn't say this was going to be my career. Right. And Ivar Lovas, he had a lot of charisma. Half of his lectures were jokes and so on. And then when it came time to do field work, um, a friend of mine said, well, um, this um, is interesting. And um, he enjoyed it quite a bit. And I thought, well, um, give it a shot. And so I did ABA with several um, individual children. And um, um, I remember watching television and um, saying to myself, well, why do some of these individuals hit themselves? And I just, for some reason, came up with the theory. Mm. And then I thought it was interesting enough that um, next day at a time um, between classes, went to the psych library, went to the um, developmental disability section, and I would just randomly pull out books, and I'd open randomly, and there'd be something written that was consistent with my theory. Interesting. And I thought I'd write up a two-pager just to get it out, um, but I wasn't really thinking much of it. I just thought it was of interest, and I gave it to a graduate student who was overseeing the fieldwork class, and um, about a couple weeks later, she said, well, she didn't know how to respond, but she gave it to Ivar Lovas is a you know, big charismatic guy. Yeah, and said, yeah. Well, go see him. And so I went, and the secretary said, yeah, he's waiting for you, which I was a little surprised. And uh, he, he liked the theory. And um, he then he said, well, why don't you work with me, collect some data, actually published two papers together. And then um, a lot of my ideas were physiological. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I was interested in behavioral, but I was interested in quite a few other things. And I reviewed like 150 medical charts at Camarillo State Hospital, which right. I was uh, volunteered. And um, then all of a sudden, um, well, I said, well, I really can't give you much feedback on what you're thinking about, but why don't you meet my friend Bernie Remlin? Oh. And so um, he had me leave the room and um, well, I called Remlin and well, I came back out and said, well, he'll see you this Saturday if you're around. And gave me um, directions he wrote down to get to the office, which I still have somewhere. And, Amazing. yeah, drove down, and he and I hit it off. And just every two or three months, I'd go down, and we'd talk about different things. And, and then it was time to go to graduate school. Both Lovas and Revlin wrote letters to get me in. And just I went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and just by chance, Temple Grandin was a graduate student there. Amazing. So so Remlin introduced us together because he was editing her first book, which was later HBO movie. And um, so Temple and I would meet maybe once a month, either lunch or dinner, um, compare notes about autism. We're the only ones on campus, you know, studying or thinking about it. And um, that's kind of how it all all began. So that's amazing. So I I wasn't aware of that. Ivar also introduced me to Bernie. So that's amazing. And, and, and of course, I'm so glad that he did. And, and Bernie, even though he's not here, has influenced both of our lives very significantly. Oh, I agree. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate all of your time and all the amazing work that you're doing. And, you know, if there's anything here we can do on, our autism live or my show. We're always happy to support you. We're, um, love the work that you do. And, uh, thank you so much for spending the hour with me here. Oh yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And good luck with everything you're doing, Doreen. You're doing great work. Thank you very much. Be well, Steve. Good to see you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Well, that was wonderful. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And I am um, looking and seeing that some of you, my friends, are on the chat with us. And uh, what a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to spend the last half hour speaking with uh, someone who really does know the field of autism very well. So, Thank you so much, everyone. We're going to take a very, very short break now. 
And then we will come back with uh, two hours of Ask Dr. Doreen, where I look forward to answering all your questions. So we'll be back in five minutes or, or less. See you soon. Make sure that you smash that subscribe button on YouTube and give us a like on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram for important updates. And please download our free podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. See you next time.